Okay. The expendable man. But isn't every man expendable? Am I right, ladies? <laughs> Welcome to the Womanizer. <laughs> That was excellent, Roxanne. Honestly, that's a high point for white man in this episode, so it's only downhill from there. You said you had a cold open. You didn't say you had a scorching hot open. <laughs> I just do it for the look of like deep disappointment on John's face. <laughs> like the upset look on your face. <laughs> All right, welcome to the Rhetorizer. It's a book show, a show about books. I'm John with an H, and I'm joined here by Rusty Roxanne, Crunchy Kevin, and Juicy Jacob. Oh, hi. <laughs> Ew. And uh, today, we're going to talk about a book, not a movie, a book. That's right. The book show today is about a book, and we're going to talk about Dorothy B. Hughes's The Expendable Man, the latest noir book in our series on noir. Um, right, so, Jacob, who is Dorothy B. Hughes? Can you tell me a little bit about Dorothy B. Hughes? I know you guys covered it in the last episode, but, uh, you know, give us a refresher. A little, little uh, uh, summarizer on Dorothy B. Hughes. We talked about her in Homecoming last week. Um, but she is a noir novelist and critic, uh, she wrote some well-regarded noir novels in the 40s, one of which was adapted into a Bogart film. She took some time off to care for her family uh, and her grandmother, and then she came back in 1963 with The Expendable Man, the book we're talking about today. And then she stopped writing fiction for the rest of her life and focused on her reviews. And she is an Edgar Lifetime Achievement Award winner for her contributions in the role of criticism about noir and critically a white woman, which uh, we'll get into that a little bit more no later. Spoilers. Right. So, so, okay. So I think, I think, so this book was, as you said, was published in the 60s. Right? And this is, so we've jumped like a good few decades from our last few books. And it's definitely significant for this book and like the sort of political context that it takes place in. And I think we'll we'll get to that, right? But she started in the 40s, right? Like she started the same time as like yeah. the, the, those other. She's a contemporary, books. like she's like slight, maybe a few years behind like Kane and Chandler, but she's like in, she starts right, in that right, era. Right. Yeah. But, she, but she, she's one of the sort of like foundational hard boiled slash like noir writers of the era and time. Like she's, she's a big deal in that. But, but this book specifically is written in the 60s, right? Am I, yes. I, I fine saying that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna give a, a warning to listeners here. I mean, the first warning is you shouldn't be listening to this show for any reason. Uh, <laughs> but health, second warning uh, is related to the subject of the show. Yeah, if you have any self respect at all, I don't know what you're doing here uh, because <laughs> these four hosts do not have that. Um, but what I do want to give a specific warning about this book. Uh, this book has a hell of a twist. Um, I guess about a quarter of the way in, something like that. 
quarter, third, whatever, um, a way in. Uh, and if you have any plans of reading this book and you don't want that spoiled, uh, stop listening right now because we're going to spoil it very quickly. All right. I know we're going to give our judges later, but it's really well done. It's really cool. And it's very significant. And it's very poignant. It's powerful. It's well done. It's great. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm going to fucking ruin that shit for you. Sorry for my curse words. I also want to say, because Roxanne and John, you were not here last week. Last week. Last episode. Um, I really did not like the short story that she wrote. It was like like my nightmare of what noir is going to be was kind of that short story. Like the, the plot was fine, but it like wasn't very interesting. But like it was like the purplest prose you've ever seen in your life. It was like it starts about like a dark, rainy night and oh, evil was sake, a foot. Kevin. You know? <laughs> was, Jacob, did you did you it like was, the story? It was so overwritten and awful. I, I actually I like the story a lot, and uh, uh, if you listen to if you listen to our episode, Kevin kind of comes around on it a little bit. He starts off big like I hate it, and then we talk about it. He's like, "Oh, I actually love it." Um, so it's a little surprising now that he's reversed himself. I have so another the thing spoiler. Is- I have another spoiler alert for the last episode. <laughs> Kevin didn't like that story, so. <laughs> So for people listening to season backwards, you're listening to season backwards. That's pretty typical but, Radarizer fair that like Kevin will like something and, or not like something and Jacob will be the exact opposite. It's kind of like... No, I, I did. Point. I did kind of come around. There were some interesting psychological elements to it, and I kind of it, it, there was interesting stuff in the story, but like the prose was the worst like the most atrocious like bad parody of a crime writer prose you could imagine um okay. so i like i was a little dreading getting to this book and um i was actually shocked because in 20 years her prose has like gotten is has evolved a lot Kevin. i thought I thought this was like super, no, I thought this was like super clean written, like, like really like cool imagery. Like it was like the polar opposite prose wise. Then let's, let's, let's dive into it. Some of that imagery. So that's where I'm starting. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's dive into it. Let's talk about this, uh, this book. All right. So is there any, so we sort of covered some biographies or any other sort of context we need, Jacob, any other sort of contextualizer stuff. I see you typing furiously. So yeah. Why are you typing to? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. This is neither here nor there. So any other, Jacob uh, has an AOL chat going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Jacob. Like we're, we're... (laughs) like the thing is your mic, I don't know how your microphone placement is. I don't know how your microphone placement is, but we pick up every single keystroke, but like at the same level as advantage. your voice. Yeah, I use that to my advantage because um, uh, I like that when I type, I can tell it particularly makes like Kevin have Dorothy B. Hughes protagonist style anxiety when he hears the typing, where he's like, "Oh fuck, what's he doing now? What what is okay. he going to read to us? 
what is he what is he doing you know how long is flirtations gonna be anyway sorry uh let's I, talk I, about this book summarizer yes. what is the book about uh, well no i, I asked i asked if there's any more context about this book you need to give is there any sorry just some context for people context so it's 1963 book, uh this book was released in 1963 we, i don't know when but presumably jfk was alive uh, the first of a series of civil rights acts would have been passed in the about. late 1950s. Um, and this is a little bit before JFK's assassination um, and the 1964 and the 1965 Civil Rights Act, which gave black people um, in the United States the actual right to vote uh, in reality rather than just on paper. Uh, that's uh, heavily simplified. There's a lot that goes into that. Um, but this book is appearing right in the middle of the peak of the civil rights era. So I don't know why Jacob's bringing up any of that, but um, <laughs> it's also a decade before Roe v. Wade, notably, for no right. reason. Just, yeah. just, just, just listing dates in American history. Okay, yeah. So, so th this book, so this book, the the protagonist is of the protagonist of this book, and most of the action takes place through him, I mean, all of the action does, is Hugh Densmore. He's a doctor. Um, he's, he, he's doing his um he's, he's a med student. Yeah. He, no, he's, he's graduated. He doesn't say he's a med student. He's a doctor. He identifies as a doctor. He's an intern. Repeatedly. But he's interning. He, but he is a doctor. He refers to himself resident. as a doctor. He's a resident. Yeah. Uh, he's doing his residency... Right, residency. Did I say internship? Whatever. I don't know anything about doctors. He says intern in the book, but I'm pretty sure it's just what they... Spoiler sure alert, we're not doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may be a historical thing. Another guess who um, clue for them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at UCLA. He's doing his residency at UCLA. And he's driving to Phoenix to go to his niece's wedding. He's got a rather large family, a large extended family as well. And they originally come from Phoenix and he's going there to his grandparents' place um, where they're having a large family wedding. Uh, on the way, he's driving through Phoenix and already he's feeling a little bit sort of through apprehensive. Indio. Yeah, he's going through Indio, and there's like a lot of young kids, like teenagers, sort of driving around, causing a little mayhem. And... They're sort of like an evil version of the Archie gang. They're like driving around the side <laughs> of the road in a dolly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I sort of pictured them as kind of like sickly-looking versions of like Betty and Veronica and Archie and Moose and Dughead, and just like sinister. Yeah, that's, that's like... really that's good. That's great. Yeah. Um, what did you guys? think of this like this early characterization does this strike you at all it just the paranoia and like the anxiety it was having around like groups of kids uh struck me but as like a man approaching his middle age i was just like yeah i'm afraid of teenagers too <laughs> <laughs> they make me uncomfortable very different reasons <laughs> i'm also afraid of teenagers so it's fine yeah, and as as someone who was a teenage boy and was like not a great teenage boy, uh, I am like more afraid of teenage boys and groups <laughs> of them now. So I'm like, 
they'll 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 hurt you for no reason. No reason yeah. at all. <laughs> but I feel like the way it's described, the way he's unsettled by them, you you kind of end up wondering like why? Cuz he is so anxious about it, right? At the beginning before. But he also <clears throat> the thing Hugh early on I find comes across kind of like arrogant and like he, he, he seems kind of annoying. He's a little fussy and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, yeah, he, he, he picks up a hitchhiker, right? He picks up a hitchhiker who's like kind of like a dirty yes. hippie. Um and and no, he's I like say dirty hippie. I think she's just dirty. I think she's a dirty like poor child. I think she's yeah. kind of a proto hippie. She's like uh, she's like sleeps around. She kind of is like you know she's she's kind of dirty. She's like it's but, kind but, of that. Hip, hippies hippies do not have sole providence over being dirty and sleeping around. It, <laughs> it, it's a specific aesthetic that she does not have. Um. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, but the way he talks about her, he's just like he he almost he he almost has this like you know it chilled him to think what might happen if someone else like picked her up you know and he's like and then he's like calls her cheap he's like oh what she's wearing my my sister says that's cheap he says she's yeah, not but, pretty but he, but, but he does all pick this her up weird for good for like good reasons he picks her up he says because he has young sisters. And yeah. it bothers him to think about what might happen to her if she's out there alone. I, I do agree that he's a bit like fastidious. I wouldn't say he's annoying. And I think a lot of his actions, he is kind of like short with her and maybe a little more demanding than you would expect. It's okay. So he picks up the hitchhiker. It's a, it's a young, it's a young teenager. She immediately lies about her age. He could tell she's lying about where she's going, what she's doing. She's dirty. He's, he's clear. She's clearly in dire straits. And he goes from like wanting to help her for pretty good reasons because, again, he says he feels empathy towards her because he also has young sisters to being like suspicious of her and kind of annoyed with her. And it's motivated by this like fear. And later on, once you find out more about him, it it's it feels more justified. Um, but uh, yeah, I sorry I get what you're saying. What he's being an annoying, I guess, but I don't know. Really well, he's like very paternal, right? Like she's she's talking about she calls her mother a tramp, and it, and it says his hand clenched to keep from striking her. Don't say that, you know. It's just like he's like he's this very uptight. Like he's and he's kind of like I'm going to save you from the world, you know. He's got a little bit of a temper. He's like sort of helping her, but he's also kind of like like I agree, Kevin. He's like he wants to help her, but he also wants to help her in a very specific way. Right? He also calls her an evil little girl. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. He's not. I, he's not. I don't see him as you know like some benevolent you know helper. Like he's he's got it's a weird like paternal kind of thing. I find. Yeah, and I find like the 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 more he's like kind of stressed about her or afraid to see her again, the the more like suspicious I I was becoming of him at the beginning, you know, like before mm. before I knew more about him. <laughs> I yes, I agree. I, I had the like, same experience. I was like, Roxanne, why yes. are you so worried about this teenage? Like, what is it about the seeing a teenage? You know, like why are you so like it? It was just suspicious. I was like, he's gonna do something bad. Well, I didn't think he was gonna do something bad, but I was like, why is he so anxious about this? Like, what what is it about having this like this young 
girl around that he's helping, like he's so worried about how it might seem to other people, even though ostensibly he's helping her. And it's like, it's like, what is what is this about? I didn't think he was going to do something sinister. Like I didn't get that, but I was also like, like why 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 is this happening? And his uh, kind of like paternalistic sort of like actions towards her. It's it's to me, it's like signaling. Like, oh, this guy's like really upper class, right? Uh, there's another weird tell where she asks him what he does, and he says, "Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a doctor," and she's like, "Really?" And he's like, he like she like extenuates like the certain uh, the syllable, and in the prose, in his like thoughts, he goes, it, "Her response didn't surprise him, but didn't bother him." It's like, why would anyone be surprised that you're a doctor? You know, like. Um, but anyways, we find out later. Anyway, so she although picks, you could take up. that two ways, you could take that two ways later. But yeah, yeah. So uh, he he he's instantly suspicious of her. Uh, I, her name is Iris. Iris. Uh, Iris uh, Kroom. That's a that's how she identifies as. That's what she tells him. He's suspicious of her. He's suspicious of everything she says. And she wants to go to Phoenix. He wants to get rid of her. He tries to get rid of her on the way um, by dropping off another town, buying her a bus ticket. It doesn't work. She shows well, he up. He doesn't again. want to carry her over the border, which yeah. we'll get into later. But she shows up at the border, uh, at the at the border where he gets he gets stopped and checked. And he's not surprised that he gets stopped and checked. And they like specifically check his medical bag, because again, he's a doctor. And they're like, is there any dope in here? You know? And he's like, ugh, no. And he he, he kind of acts like he's like used to this, or he kind of expects it. And she shows up, and because she shows up in a public place. For some reason, he feels like he cannot publicly, you know, reject her like this. It would look too bad. Like, she has power over me in this public setting, right? And so he takes her with him again. And then so they drive, and eventually they get to Phoenix, you know, with some interludes and stuff. She lies to him a bit more, and he knows she's lying to her. He's, he's very shrewd. He's very good at, like, reading people. He's the detective of the story, you know, which comes in later. And he gets to Phoenix and he drops her off and then he goes to see his family. Where does he and, drop her off again? A, a bus station? Or yeah. A, yeah. 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 He drops her off at the bus station in Phoenix. Is and she says she's going to see her uh her, her aunt, aunt or is it right? her mom? And it gives the name Mabel aunt Mabel. Her her aunt, yeah. Yeah. And then the tone of the book shifts very radically, uh, at least because then, like, he goes to, like, the most bumping, like, house situation. He goes to his grandparents' place, and they're, like, getting ready for a wedding, and there's people everywhere, there's food. It's kind of like... uh, the home alone, like the McAllister house, the beginning of yeah. Home Alone. It's just like a giant house with like so many people running around, and he's like immediately happy. He's running, or is 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 you know his his grandma dotes on him, and it's his like mom this, like, set him up with a date, and he's like, oh mom, you can't be setting yeah, me up with yeah. these girls. Like it's it's this upper middle class family. They put him up at a nearby motel called the Palms. You know. Uh, rather because they're they're out of rooms, even this like giant house. Uh, what did you guys I think mean, of that like shift, this like family sort of situation, like uh, scene that gets set? I mean, it creates obvious. It it, it, it immediately creates tension, right? Because like you know, like 
<laughs> yeah, something you're, you're too, dark's going to happen with yeah, this girl and it's going to mess up you're too every- early in the book for this just to be okay well it's just nice now it's just a nice family story really? before that the wedding, to the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> he's gonna go home is she gonna get gonna is, is, is he, oh he's going to his niece's wedding i should mention is, is she gonna get married yeah. is that the question no that's not the question you know that's not the tension of the plot <laughs> uh and then later on when he goes to his 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 motel who should show up of course but iris and he's like kind of he's been He's been expecting her to show up. Like, he's very paranoid. And then it turns out to be justified. She shows up and she. Well, wait, wait. Being... I have a question. Go At ahead. the. Is he already asking about the news the f- when he's with his family? Like, is he already, like, the second he leaves her, is he kind of thinking something's like. I don't think he, so. Is he already be like, do you have a paper or something? Is that already happening? I, I don't I, think so. I, I think you're the right. First I time think he is already ch- checking the paper. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, the first time she leaves, he's actually following up at her first because she borrowed ten dollars and he wants his ten dollars back. Yeah. So he's like trying to figure yeah, and he's right. trying to check in on her uh, and being like, Oh, who's this Mabel? And he's trying to like find like I think she's a oh, beautician yeah. or something. And he's like, like trying book. to find like beauticians with the name Mabel and they don't exist. Basically, very quickly finds out like he writes off his ten dollars. He hopes he'll never see this girl again. And she's like, as this family thing's like unfair unwinding she, he's like in the back of his mind worried that she's gonna show up again yeah. and like ruin her right face. right so yeah, that's paranoia is already i un- forgot about that yeah. when he goes through the phone book calling all the beauticians in phoenix to ask if she's around because he he, he he yeah he's suspicious signs could happen and Rex, i think you're right that he is sort of like keeping an eye on the paper a little bit um yeah i just remember like you're still feeling stressed about it it's not like you're suddenly at a family home and it's like okay you know like, i think I feel he like just... the, the mood is still like he's still thinking about this girl and you're still thinking about this girl well it's because it's because when he crosses the border he remembers the border guard seeing him picking up the girl on the other side and he knows that they were like that they remember him and so he's really paranoid about that too yeah it's it's interesting later on this will like be more important but it's interesting that like he like he's already set up as he has this like analytical mind he's a detective like he's putting that that stuff together he's already like going through the phone book he knows that he's the last person seen with her at the border and that could be like problematic for him like he already has this brain where he's thinking about uh facts and like how things appear to other people you know he's thinking about like alibis stuff like that like he's sort of he's sort of built for something like this to happen to him right you know but again, that's what made me suspicious about him. Like, did he have a past case or something? Like, did something happen to him for him to know what they would be looking for? Like, at that point, I'm still thinking that in my head. Or maybe, you know, just maybe it's a matter of survival for him. And uh, anyways, he's justified. Maybe, uh, Iris shows up and she asks him for, she shows up at his motel. She somehow finds him. Probably because he's oh he's also driving a white Cadillac everywhere. <laughs> a giant white yeah. Cadillac. If, if you're gonna make a movie, if you're gonna make a movie of this book, you could put so much product place it'll pay for itself. You can't make a movie in this, of book, this book. They talk but, about yeah. stopping to drink cokes all the time, Coca Cola, you know, and the Cadillac, the white Cadillac is talked about so so goddamn yeah. much it's like the mascot of this uh and this is like his mom's car or something too uh, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah but you cannot make a movie of this book for reasons we will get into 
No. I mean, you could. Oh, I mm, this book is it works as a book. We'll talk about <laughs> it. Um, but she shows up. She asks for an abortion. So that kind of reveals why she came to Phoenix. You know, um, she's you know that's why she's sort of on the run, allegedly from her family. You know, she's been knocked up and she's she's very young, you know. Uh, how old does she end up being? Like 15, 14, something like that? I don't think she tells him this at this point, though. I don't think she actually mentions the but abortion. He, he I think she of, just says that. Glocks no, no, right? she does. Like, she yeah. says, you're a doctor. I need your help or something like that. It's yeah. implied. It's like, I think he's like, like how, old is she? how old yeah, is she? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, th- um, she she did say, but she it was a lie. She did lie about her age. I forget where, but um, she said she was a junior like in high school, to sixteen yeah. or something. Yeah, and right. he like she's... knows immediately that she's lying because also she looks really young. Yeah, and yeah. she says she got knocked up by an adult, a married adult man. Yeah, so she shows up asking for abortion. He says, "Hell no!" Like he is not going to get involved in that. Yeah. And then she disappears, and then. You know, she turns up dead. He sees a newspaper that says, uh, you know, young girl found dead in the canal. He knows it's her, even though it's, you know, not clearly, you know, it's just like Iris Kroom. She's unidentified right now. He knows, he knows that this is gonna, this is gonna, this is gonna come for him. Serge, can we just pause here for a second? I just want to talk about checking the newspaper. Uh, and how much better things were before the internet and social media because Dorothy B. Hughes gets so much goddamn mileage out of the fact that the characters don't know what's going on unless they're Mm. standing next to a phone or they're looking at a newspaper. And so a lot of like the ambient dread of this film, this film, this this book, is that often the main character, uh, Hugh, is like knows there's some news that's happened and he needs to see a newspaper to double check it but he doesn't want to like reveal to people that he's like anxious for one reason or another so he's like he's like a little bit interested in like seeing what's in the newspaper but doesn't want people to see that he's interested and he has like he's like burning inside because he's like oh my god i need to know what the fuck is going on right now anyways this is That's... great uh they should ban the internet so we can go back to these days <laughs> I, I want I think, to go I think back we should. i think it's worth talking about because it, it is a big part of the book mm-hmm. like for the first half at least that like he that like the newspaper and journalist and it reminds me the postman always rings twice for like Everyone at the funeral, everyone gets the paper and they find out that um, she's uh, acquitted. <laughs> she's so, like acquitted for murder for, at the funeral that she's at. They're like, oh, I'm sorry for like being really mean to you like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um, I will say a couple things. One, both Dorothy B. Hughes and James Malahan Kane were journalists. Um, oh, so, so, you know, don't listen to I them. Think it, i think it's i think it's a little i mean in a sense yeah it's like they 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 think about this stuff and also they actually know how news works i'm like it's not like a ridiculous movie news thing um but also yeah i I wouldn't even say the first half i see throughout the entire story it's very important right because yes he becomes very paranoid about about you know being in the news and and there's like the you know the 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 detectives have like relationships with the newspapers, and there's this whole like kind of backdoor media control thing going on. It's kind of like a subtle like 
B plot that they don't direct super uh, address super directly, but it's, yeah, it comes it's up present now then, entirely yeah. throughout the entire book. Yeah, and the it, second that he like closes the door on her, that's when it ramps up, right? Because every time he's at with his like parents under, they give him like the sports section or whatever, and he's like, oh yeah, but he, you know, he's like, <laughs> there's he's like, like the anxiety of like where where is the actual section? Like that's yeah. kind of like a, he's like, can you, uh, can you pass news, the grandpa? dead girl section uh, over? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, not that I'm looking for one, but you didn't see anything about a dead girl, did you? <laughs> anyway, what's playing at the theater? Oh, look, the sports page. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think... Uh, can you pass me the, the comics and the, the murder <laughs> section? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Family Just Circus is quite good today. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so then he goes to his niece's wedding, and he's hitting it off with Ellen. Ellen, super hot. Um, oh, this is the girl his mom is setting him up with. That mom is setting like, up with. Whoa, super she's hot. way out of my league. She's, yeah. she's yeah. very she's, upper class, Washington, D.C. I think she's judge. maybe a descendant of Alexander Hamilton. I think it's implied at some point. Oh, yeah? Last, yeah. Her last name is Hamilton. He says, I forget what he said, but he says something at some point that made me think, like, she goes back, like... To the founding of America. He said, have you seen the musical? And she's like, yeah, I read the musical. <laughs> yeah. Lin-Manuel oh. Miranda is a genius. My dad's a judge. I've been in the future many times. <laughs> <laughs> Very upper class. Upper, upper-er class than Hugh is, even. Yeah, and uh, even though in the back of his mind, uh, Hugh is freaking out. Uh, having like a panic attack, you know, anxiety attack. He still manages to uh, flirt with Ellen throughout the um, wedding, but she notices. She notices that he has his eye on the door. She keeps asking him if he's waiting for someone. He's like, I don't know, maybe no. Yeah, he's acting super. You, he's acting super suspicious. Like he keeps looking at the door, and he's like really sweaty and stuff. And she's like, she's still into it. Like, what is he? He's, like, expecting this girl. Like, I don't know. He's expecting he's ex- the cops. And yeah. then yeah. he gets he justified because he goes out. And the cops are there. And yeah, they approach sure. him. And he was right. And so the cops approach him when he's with Ellen. And he tells, you know, El- he's, he, he knows what's going on. He tells Ellen, basically, he's like, I know he just met, but please don't tell my family about this. I don't want to worry them. And she's like, fine. Also, and bring my tried- giant car home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also bring my giant car home, <laughs> and um, White yeah, it becomes a kind of a, a, a plot pointer later. But just a characteristic. She, she, she immediately from this point on becomes her his accomplice, and you know she's his ally, right? Accomplice is the wrong word because you know. And then and this is where we get the big reveal. Very shortly after this, after these two cops, Ringle and Venner who uh, are, like, just completely reprehensible villains in this book. Yeah. Um, also villain they... names, right? Ringo and Venner. <laughs> yeah, Ringo very... was, was like... like... Those are henchmen name, if I've ever Very heard good. Of very yeah. good henchmen names, right? Yeah. Very good, like, anti- like low-level antagonist names, like... That's this, uh, you know, that's a level one boss fight right there. Um, well, there's a distinction between them, though. Uh, but should we get into it now, or do you want to get to the reveal? Have we gotten to the reveal yet? The reveal. I have a page in front of me where the reveal happens. 
If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like books. It's definitely not because you like us. Definitely not because you like Jacob. Um, so this podcast is proudly supported by Perfect Books. Perfect Books, independent bookstore in Ottawa. The next time you're in Ottawa, hit them up. Get some of the books you've heard on this podcast. Get some other books. They got a great selection of books. One of the best bookstores, personally, that I've ever had the pleasure of going to. Support independent books. Go to Perfect Books. Buy them books. Thank you, Perfect Books. You're the best. Mecca spoiler alert. Kevin, give give the reveal. Let's go. Let's get so, it. This is very important. This is what we learn once Ringle and Venner um, accost and uh, you know take Hugh away for questioning. So you're on. We're on page fifty four of the book, towards the end of the second chapter. He's being questioned by the police, and then it says Ringle's lips pursed. This Irish groom a white girl, and then. Uh, so I think you immediately get, get something's up there. And then on the next page, he says, this guy says an N-word doc driving a big white Cadillac brought Bonnie Lee to Phoenix. So at this point, it kind of everything makes sense. All the paranoia, all the, the weirdness around the cops, all the like, you know, it, it, this guy's black. I have to say, like, I'm not one for... I don't care about spoilers usually. Like I, I will, will usually read an episode recap before I watch it. And I was really happy I went into this like blind because like this really like also because you find out in the most violent way because he uses the N word. But like it really like shocked me. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> right, that makes sense. I think it. It's such an interesting device too, where it's like the, the 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 space where suddenly his race is like most prominent is when he's dealing with the cops, right? But also, if as a reader you didn't like figure that out, or because it wasn't spelled out, you can assume it. You are culpable, like like the door, like be like Hughes makes you culpable in this for if you assumed he was white because of all the signaling they did about him being like upper class and a doctor and stuff like that. And like you're, you as a reader are culpable in this sort of like assumption and like how like everything changes. Like it's really, it's really well done. Um, and it's, it's shocking. Like I reread it a few times. I was like, wait, what, what's mm -hmm. going on? And it's, 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 it's a really uh, heavy moment. And a lot of what, Hugh is worried about makes a lot more well, it sense. Well, it all makes sense, right? no? And because... every single one of his actions and like, yeah. yeah, everything suddenly makes sense. And you understand what a risk he took in like legitimately trying to help someone out. And it's a lot, it's a lot more clear, right? Um, and Venner and Ringle's immediate antipathy towards him is not just because he's a suspect, but because, you know, they're, they're racist, right? Yes. It's, I actually think there's a distinction between Ringle and Venner, not a big one, but I think Venner is the one who's more openly bigoted, and Ringle oh, is kind time. of a dull, dullard who doesn't really question 
the, you, there's you want, a problem you, you with this you partner. You said you wanted to talk yeah. about their characterizations. Uh, I think. I think. Oh, this is just what too. I wanted to get into the distinction, which is just that like Venner is kind of a smaller guy who's just like this vicious racist who is like barely concealing his, his like hatred for Hugh based on his skin color, where Ringle is not really doing anything to rein in his partner, but I don't think he's quite as openly racist anyway. Um, but there is a slight distinction between them in terms of their disposition towards uh Oh yeah, Hugh. I mean Venner yeah. doesn't yeah. conceal his not hatred in... at all, no? He's all hatred. Yeah. He's like a hundred percent hatred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's th- downright sinister later as well. Yeah, he's like yeah. super villain. I also think like the distinction between them and Hackamore, who ends up taking over the running the Hackaberry. case. Hackaberry. Hackaberry. Hackaberry Finn. Hackaberry, because because of <laughs> yeah, jurisdictional because of jurisdictional issues, he ends up going to see this other guy who's like. Is he, is, is he like the county guy? Is he like the rural, the rural he's guy? He's the sheriff. So he has, he's got dual he's jurisdiction. And yeah. then they assign, because there's Scottsboro and there's Phoenix. There's the two different cities. Scottsdale. Yeah. And my understanding is that, Scottsdale, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so on the names. The Marshall Hackaberry has jurisdiction over both. And then Ringle and Venner are, I think, from Scottsdale. But because they're working for Hackenberry, they can. Go it's because of where both. she died, right? And like, yeah, it's, but it becomes. But it's super interesting because Hackenberry, Hugh sees him and he's like relieved because he's like, "Oh, this guy's not like judging me for being black." He's like, "Well, he's, it's because of his attitude seems, towards him." Okay. Yeah, exactly. But but and then it, it creates this really interesting tension where it's like this: there's this jurisdictional issue, and like depending where it lands, I could be in the hands of this guy, or I could be in the hands of Renner. You know, I th- I think it's a little more complicated. I don't think Hackaberry is like a sympathetic figure. No, I think but like, he well, that's how he's yeah, that's how he's portrayed like at first. Like I think he's, he's also from the him. bigger city yeah. too, though. I think that yes. Phoenix is the bigger town between Scottsdale. Yes, like Scottsdale is like the suburb, and it's smaller and more rural. And Hackaberry is a bit more political because there's more press and it's, there's yes. more people on him and all that stuff. So. Fine point. That, fine that, choice that's of the word. main thing about Hackaberry versus yeah. Veteran Ringle is that he's political. Like he's yeah. explicitly like he explicitly says, "I don't want to make this a race thing because of like the political context." Or is Ringle and Venner like they they just do not care about that? But yeah, he doesn't want to civil rights. Cares about the optics. He doesn't want. We'll, to we'll get to Hackerberry up. too because there's a lot of very funny things about Hackerberry like that happen. He's kind of like this, like uh, he's kind of like too stupid to be as bureaucratic as he's trying to be, you know? <laughs> which is like really, uh, which sort of like buffoonish behavior from him, which is like kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. But um, what it says is he doesn't want to get like sued by a civil rights group, basically, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, or have the Klan come out. He's kind. Of, he does this like, that, equivocation yeah. between the ACLU. And the KKK, where he's like, look, I don't want the bigots coming out. I don't want, like, the commie civil rights people coming out. Like, let's try to keep this, you know, away I, from I just, those I just, I just don't want to, I don't want to let this guy off, off, uh, off easy, though, because, like, he is, Oh, I'm not is, saying like, that's he good. Is, he yeah. is, like, he is, like, in, in many parts, like, later on in the book, he's very happy to be, like, oh, case closed. Hugh must have done this. 
yeah. without like actually doing the police work that Hugh has to do himself to like <laughs> clear his name. Oh, We're he's half- still like clearly a, a racist, but I think that's kind of like one of the. He's a more genteel racist. Yeah, he's a more genteel racist. But it's also showing how that like that. We'll, we'll talk about it like later, I think. But like as we get to the character, it's also like. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. But like, I think it's like it's it's, it's interesting. It's another sort of side of like this racism, that's mm-hmm. you know, that's like ostensibly more palatable, like because it's like thinking about the optics of it. But he's also like, he he's 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 just as happy to, you know, blame a, a, a Hugh and like throw Hugh in jail for this, just because it would be convenient for him, you know. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that's what's one of the things that's interesting about this book is they do go through like these different flavors and lo- of racism, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's true. Like, like the woman at the motel, it's kind of like, well, she's not going to be mean to me, but she's going to make me wait for my room. You know, like these, there's like these things that kind of recurring motif throughout the book where there's like these different. Yeah. yeah. The different levels of racism, I would yeah. say, that doors. Dorothy B. Hughes is really good at like exploring, especially for a white woman. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I like especially the scene, Kevin, that you talked about with the woman at the um, the motel where she's gonna like make him wait for his room, and then in the in the interiority of Hugh, he's kind of like, well, at least she's being nice. She's like doing her part, but she's. <laughs> She's also bound up by this racist system. I think Dorothy, I think Hughes kind of lets some racism off a little too easy, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, they're, they're part of this. They're, she's she's part of this. She's part of the world we live in, too, you know? So she her, like, actions are bound by that, too. So she, she can't do everything that she wants for me, you know, even if she would want to help me get in the rumors. She can't, you know? And yeah. it's kind of like... It's it's uh it's kind of weak. Um, I mean, there is a weakness well too. Like, I find in, in Ellen's character, there's a bit of a weakness, and that's like she's just too perfect and too f- yeah. and too fearless. You know, like this is like the I worst would... first impression of like a love interest I think I've ever encountered. Where she's like earnestly seems to be into this guy, and I mean he's justified in some ways, but like the entire time he's like, oh my god. Please help me. Please. I'm not being sketchy. I can't tell you what's happening right now. Please just like don't tell my family. Oh my God. Oh my God. And then it's like, oh, can you get to me a lawyer? Uh, do you have any money? I don't have any money right now. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, like, this he... goes on for like a week. <laughs> okay. 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 Let, let's, let's, let's just get through the summary really quick. All right. So, Wait, sorry, can we just okay. back up for a moment? I just want to like sure, highlight sure. one important thing, which is like yeah. um, with this amazing bait and switch uh, that. Dorothy B. Hughes does. Um, one of the important things that, like, I don't think everyone has picked up on uh, or might pick up on now is that um, there's this prominent case of Jack Johnson, this boxer in the early 20th century. He was black. I know Jack Johnson. And he was arrested for bringing, I think, his girlfriend uh, or his wife over, a, like, a state line. Um, and this was a law that was used against black people because uh, this law had been created to stop people to do human trafficking of like prostitutes. So they accused his wife of being a prostitute and said he violated this act. And so I think part of what Dorothy B. Hughes is referring to here is 
because uh, Hugh has brought Iris over the state line, he's now worried that he could be prosecuted under this same law, uh, which I think was still in effect at this time. And she's a minor on top of it. And that's why he's all paranoid about uh, well, she's also this whole dead. thing with the border. And she's dead. Yes. So he's facing. <laughs> she also got murdered. Yes. <laughs> oh, and there's a boyfriend out there somewhere who drove her to his house and knows that she's yes. trying to get an abortion from him and can, you know, pin anything on him that he wants to. And his word will be worth more than Hughes because this man's white. So uh, Ringle and Venner take Hugh to the morgue. Uh, Hugh doesn't want to supply but all wait, the information wait. he knows, How but he does they... identify Bonnie Lee Crumb. Sorry, go ahead. They they find him because they get an anonymous tip. Yes, yeah, someone that's calls very it good. In. Very good point. Yes, uh, they get an anonymous tip about him, and so he assumes. You know, that could be anyone from, you know, just saw him or from the border or whatever. But but they get an anonymous tip, and he knows that he's suspect number one. Venner and Ringle clearly suspect him of having murdered uh, her. Mm -hmm. Uh, Iris's name is revealed to be Bonnie Lee Crumb. He, you know, he doesn't identify her. He identifies as Iris Crumb, you know. Um, but the coroner, uh, luckily for Hugh, I guess, is out for a few days. So the police don't really know the method of death or that uh, she was pregnant or that she presumably had an abortion. So they they let him off, uh, Hugh, Hugh off, and uh, he's, he's obviously very worried. Uh, he confides in Ellen, you know, the sort of, you see the relationship sort of develop. And then um, he ends up getting called by the Marshal Hackleberry, who we talked about. Uh, Hackleberry really disagrees about the optics. He doesn't want to make this like a race thing. Um, and they have like a sort of, he has to, he, he then, Hugh ends up telling Hackleberry because Hackleberry Hackleberry. Hackleberry, excuse me. Did I say Hackleberry? Yeah, I say Hackleberry like again and again and Hackleberry. again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I, I, I meant to say Hackleberry. It's just like when I said uh, Katrina Longworth. Um, if there's one thing about you guys, you're not good at names. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's so many of them. Everyone has one. You know? It's fucking annoying. Um, <laughs> I wish you She's fucking rude to them, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, he tells Hackleberry like the real story, you know, like what actually happened. And Venner and Ringle are furious that uh, Hugh held out on them. So Ellen, um, so yeah, Hugh gets let off. Ellen suggests that uh, Hugh gets a lawyer and she helps him get one. Um, Jacob, you, you seem to know a lot about lawyers. Did you find anything interesting about their lawyer selection and the sort of criteria they had? Uh, well, I mean... They're picking the lawyer, and I mean, I don't have any personal knowledge of this because uh, it's totally different context than the one I've heard of. Um, and it's essentially they're not just looking for a good lawyer; they're looking for a lawyer who can deal with the politics of the situation, right? Who's also like, white? Yes. So that's it. yeah. yeah. 
They want to. They don't just want a good lawyer. They're looking specifically for a lawyer that white people in Phoenix will believe, right? So I think initially uh, there's some discussion that somebody in Hugh's family can get him like a prominent black lawyer, or they could get someone from the ACLU or something like that. I think is the other suggestion. Um, and and Ellen is like, no, like that's not going to work. Like I'm going to talk to my dad, and we need to find you someone who is not necessarily like positively even predisposed to you to begin with but we need someone who's going to be perceived as like neutral and popular in this community for you to have a chance and so that's how they get uh referred to sky pronounced in the old-fashioned way houston <laughs> Sky Houston, what a character! <laughs> I just imagine someone in like leopard print with like his shirts always unbuttoned. There's always like lots of chest hair and chains. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's how he's described, but that's. How I, I could guarantee you that's not how he's described. <laughs> having read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I know, no, but it just every time he just. Do you has guys a... ever seen the movie The Big Lebowski? Do you know Jackie Treehorn <laughs> and his, yeah, like, his house? Yeah. I, I imagine yeah. him not being as old as Jackie Treehorn, but he's like Jackie Treehorn's like house, and he's wearing like kind of the same stuff as Jackie Treehorn. <laughs> he's like he's... the perfect lawyer, right? He's just like he's like very upstanding, very principled. Like, kind of has no personality. Like, all he cares about is like. His principles. I don't not know. Only like, his lawyer career, but also his his future political career. Yeah. So well, he's like, like he's very, gonna take this yeah. on as like a notch in his belt, right, to help him get into office. But so I thought he, said, he did have. I thought he did have personality because he's kind of like you know Hugh's always jealous of like his um like he's flirty with, chemistry. With, yeah, yeah, he's like, chemistry he's kind of like undeniably yeah. charming, especially with women. Like, and there's so a wife, powerful. but we're not sure. Yeah. yeah, we're not sure where she is, and like, but he's kind of like, yeah, he's a. And he's the kind of guy that like you come in for work, you know, for the offer and work and stuff. And he's like, hey, listen, I just going to tell you that I tell all my clients I intend to be governor one day, and like this case will help me. And I was like, whoa! And I was going to ask, uh, is this normal? Do all governors say shit like this? All future governors? Like- well, actually, it's it's, it's funny. It's because like I think you guys are talking about the super principle. Um, and I don't find it. I was sorry. Maybe no. that was the wrong word. I was just yeah. saying he's got. He's, he's very he's, ambitious. Yeah, he's ambitious very and astute he's, and yeah. like. And he, in some ways, he's like the exact. Sorry, I just call back to uh, postman always rings twice. Think of cats, and now think of. The exact fucking opposite of that slob. Like that's kind of what you're getting with Houston, yeah. which Dogs? is like, uh, no, that slob, uh, uh, cats. Sky, you know, no, like the, the lawyer. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, pardon, pardon, pardon. <laughs> um, instead of a guy who like rolls the worst cigarettes in the world, you have this like ultra classy kind of like suave you know well-dressed guy who's like sorry look i'm gonna charge you you a lot of money yeah did you say (laughs) suave i that was don talking well 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 (laughs) it's just like when you fucking jump down my throat for saying linguinal hernia or something you said i said linguini hernia don't 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 get started on that again (laughs) 
Did you Look, say swave? I'm not gonna apologize for John's behavior on this show and mispronouncing things because I'm pretty sure he said that. So what a swave! Uh, we can, <laughs> <laughs> wow, we, really can, we can talk about it more if you'd like to, John. Patrick Swavey over yeah, here. I, I'm happy to continue this Patrick discussion, but, <laughs> but we do have a show to continue. So if we want to continue with the show, we can do that. But look, I, I'm at your I'm at your convenience. So you tell me uh, how we should proceed here. Roxanne brought up the interesting thing. I think Roxanne brought up the interesting point about him, which is first, first of all, for some reason, he's always like, meet me at my house at 8.30, which like <laughs> I would think was creepy and weird if my lawyer was constantly like, we're going swimming. Come yeah, on. we're having yeah, we're having we're going yeah, like, swimming and having steaks. You and your so, uh, so you're accused yeah. of murder. We're yeah. gonna get you off this murder thing. You know what? Just uh, bring your swimming trunks. Come at eight thirty. We're gonna have steaks. We're gonna take a little dip. We'll talk about it. Get you I off in the morning. Yeah, I can guarantee you that Sky House in twenty twenty three canceled. Yeah, he's also like his wife. What is it? His wife doesn't live with him, right? No, she goes somewhere else for the summer. I think she's her. She's she's taking the kids elsewhere for like th four months or something. Yeah, totally <laughs> Anyways, normal thing fine. to do back then. That's fine. I don't um, know. I I don't know. Maybe this is something wrong with me. But like the fact that he's like offering them drinks, and making them sandwiches. I don't know. I was like <laughs> making them sandwiches. Do, just do there's your also job. a scene later on where don't make he me a was sandwich. like he was like some men don't know their way around the kitchen. Sky Houston. He knows his way around the kitchen. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, but well, Hugh's, no, but he, yeah. Hugh's even kind of charmed by him, no? Yeah. Well, Hugh's like threatened by him, right? And I think he's threatened by him. I mean, it's not just threatened. I think he's just like, he's jealous. I think he knows that it's the right move to hire him, but he's also kind of like, there's a psychological thing. Where I think he's like frustrated that he has to have this guy come and save him, which is why he like, Despite the fact that Sky Houston's clearly got everything under control and is going to win this case for him, Hugh's like still going out there trying to hunt down abortionists to prove his own innocence. Right. So yeah, that's that's yeah. So that, that's a, that's the main thing. So even after the hire Sky, Hugh knows that he has to like take this into his own hands. He is going to go try and he find. Doesn't have to. He chooses to because he doesn't. Because he, doesn't he want believes he has to. Sky he believes to save he has him. to. Yeah. He believes he has to. Um, but also I, something, like, I think that there's a class thing as well. Like, I think Sky and Ellen, like, I kind of perceive that they're more of, like, of the same class. And, like, he yes. was more on the line. Because if it, even if he's charged, he'll, like, loot lose his career. Like, his well, life he, is Hugh over. is upper middle class, and they're upper upper class. Well, they're also both politically connected, right? Like her dad being mm -hmm. a judge meant he was appointed, and then Sky being like one of the third, like the third thing he says is, "I'm going to be governor of the state one day." Like, yeah. you want a sandwich? The, that's a different level. Yeah, yeah, have, well, yeah, have a steak. And um, Ellen's dad, <laughs> your money. Yeah. Ellen's dad was their connection to Sky. Like, they're, yeah, so they're, like yeah. they're in the same social circles, basically. Yes. Ellen is also like a light-skinned black person, right? And yeah. Like, so Hugh's got all these like all all these hang-ups. Like she's lighter-skinned. He's like a tanned white man. Like they're in the same class. He's constantly concerned that that like it's not even like angry jealousy. It's more just like oh, like they belong together. I'm something else. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it and feels I feel out like of place. It's like yeah. an inferiority complex. I, that yeah, and I feel on. like that's probably part of why he he investigates on his own because he, yeah. he he thinks they don't understand the stakes, which they probably don't. Yeah, and, and I I think I think it's just he wants to do it himself. I, I actually, I kind of disagree. I feel like he feels it's a necessity because no one else will really do it. I, I don't think it's that he doesn't think Sky can't do it. I think he thinks that he has to. And ultimately, he's kind of right. Um, I mean, he's right that the police yeah. are not going to do it. But he's not right that yes. Sky won't do it. Um, anyway, so he, he goes looking. He, he, he actually tells his, his brother-in-law. He ends up getting like lists of abortionists. He tries to find well, wait, one. Wait, his brother-in-law is a doctor, and we yeah. Sh- shouldn't we a bit say like also they think that he like that she died for abortion? I don't know if we said that. Oh right, so Sky gets hold of the autopsy reports. He just calls in and asks for them because he's connected yeah. to everybody. Uh, he basically says, "Hi, Sky here. You got that autopsy on that dead girl in the canal?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, sure, Mister Houston," and uh, mm-hmm. they get it for him. And um, so she, they, they find that she, they're not, they, she didn't die from the abortion. She died from blood trauma to the head, but she had an abortion. So they don't know if it was the boyfriend. Uh, Hugh doesn't know if it's the boyfriend or the abortionist. And because if Hugh's a doctor, they suspect him of being the abortionist murderer, right? You know, both. And um, abortion clearly very frowned upon in this book. Um yeah, yeah, but like there's repeatedly also, there's a, by yeah, every character. Also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But there's Except also a part. Except for Dr. Ofer. There's yes. also a part that, like, they cops suspect a black doctor because black people have no morals. And you have to have no yes. morals to perform an abortion. So they're like, it must have been you. The book's moral position on, on uh, if, you know. I'm not saying every book has to have a moral position, but the book's moral position on 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 abortion is the wrong one in that it's bad. Um, the character's position, every single character, every <laughs> single character in the book. I don't think that's true, but we you can get to that so? later. I'm yeah. not. I'm, I think it's a much more ambi- It's a much more ambiguous, I think, relationship. Uh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's wrong, but okay. Fair enough. We'll, we'll talk about that. So, so, so he tries to find. He gets a lead. Mom, gritty, uh, old crone alert. Uh, into giddy. the crone zone. Do, stop. Man, just, just don't giddy. say names anymore. Just like he, <laughs> so he goes to look for an old. It's mom gritty. It's mom gritty. You a sweet. Um, I love that part. <clears throat> Sorry, go did ahead. you? But I, I, think well, I thought it was interesting. Of- no, I thought it was interesting. So he, so he goes to this Three Oaks neighborhood. He takes the bus because he can't be seen driving yeah. around his white Cadillac. So he has yeah. to take the bus. <laughs> this white Cadillac. <laughs> the worst. The worst. With Ellen's bus money. If he tried to solve a murderer, a murderer like uh, you know, on the down low, is is a white Cadillac. <laughs> no, that was cool. I, I. So yeah, he goes to this like weird rural like Mexican sort of off grid neighborhood. Um, where no one speaks or people speak very little English. Um, I thought that was interesting because at that point it felt like, oh, this has turned into like a detective novel, you know, where yeah. he was the detective. Yeah. Suddenly he's like, he's like out, like pounding on doors, trying to follow up clues. And it kind of, there was kind of a stylistic or a plot, however you want to say it, shift there that I found interesting. 
But also her settings are great. Like the way she describes mm -hmm. like places are, yeah, really evocative. Yes. So much better than in writer. her short story, The, uh, the Homecoming. We get it. You hate it. You hate women. Jacob? That's wrong. Uh, you I hate women. Know. Have a steak. Well, it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Have a steak. Uh, it'll be a $10,000 bill. Yeah, no, uh, sorry. I actually uh, forgot what I was going to say. But, uh, it was about Three Oaks and Mom Giddy. Mom Giddy, great name. Mom, yeah. Mom Giddy, very Mom Giddy, good name. Not as good as Mom Gritty, but um, still pretty good. <laughs> Um, Mom, Mom Giddy has a, a good alibi. She's been in the hospital for two weeks. She couldn't have done the abortion. So yeah. she gets sort of knocked off the abortionist list um, of p potential abortionist list for. So I'm just picturing so, Gritty like the Philadelphia Flyers basket. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but Sky also sends one of his aides, Meg, to back to. Uh, what do you call Indio. that? In, Indio? Yeah. Indio's the town, yeah. To to interview high school girls. And that ends up proving fruitful. So after a very sinister uh, encounter with um, with Venner um, and uh, Hugh sort of calls more abortionists, uh, Venner takes Hugh's medical bag, um, the cops find a wrench that was planted under the fender of Hugh's car. Um, he was frightened. Um, I should also mention that Hugh has been getting threatening phone calls, telling him to leave town. So there's clearly someone working out ag against him. Yeah, um, awful messages as well, yeah. Yes, the anonymous tipster leaving these awful mm -hmm. threatening messages at his old uh, hotel room where Ellen is now staying. And then they find a wrench planted on the fender of Hugh's car. And this is the probable murder weapon for, uh, you know, um, hitting Iris over the head with. So the cops find this and Hugh, it's looking really bad for Hugh. The cops are ready to just like, close the case right there. And then... Sky. Oh, sorry. Hugh. Can we pause a moment? Sorry. Sure. One of the important things is this entire time, the cops have spoken to Hugh a couple of times, but he has not been formally arrested. And one of the things he's really nervous about is that if he gets formally arrested, his name's going in the paper. And then even if he's acquitted, he's totally fucked at that point because people will think he did it, even if he didn't do it. Anyway, he didn't do it, guys. <laughs> he didn't do it. Sky saves him. They find out the real uh, boyfriend. His name is Fred O. They find it through one of uh, Iris's high school friends. Um, and then uh, Hugh doesn't get arrested. He gets sort of like let off. And then Hugh, Sky, and Ellen, they confront Fred O. They deduce that he must be uh, working for the bus company to mean that he'd go back and forth from Phoenix to India all the time. And that's where he started this romance with this high school girl, Iris, right? So Sky decides that they have to confront Fred O to sort of like get him to like admit to his like guilt, which is, uh, is this common lawyer practice? <laughs> this is very strange <laughs> to me. To bring the client along. I know that. I thought that was odd too. Like you come yeah. along with me. We're going to go. But also Ellen. He's like, he's, he's like very insistent that Ellen comes as well. 
Yeah, that was, I didn't. I didn't really get that. But um, Ellen, Ellen is good vibes. You know, you always want her around. Yeah, Ellen, Ellen's great to have around. You always um, need someone to wait in the pharmacy for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Ellen waits around a lot. Um, I hope she brought a book with her. Um, <laughs> so they meet Fred O, who's you know the the suspected murderer. He's racist, he's confrontational, and he's jacked. He's totally jacked. They talked about how muscular he is a little bit. Totally jacked. How could someone so muscular be so bad? It's hard to believe, but it's true. Then, after this, Fred O attacks Hugh in the street. He runs him off the road, and Hugh is like... I feel like Hugh is kind of... He's always been trying to find Fred O, because he knows that Fred O was the anonymous tipster, the guy's been harassing phone calls. He's always like trying to like start this, uh, this confrontation with him. And then he finally does it, and it's kind of like... As readers, I'm reading this. I'm like, why would you confront? Yeah. Why would you be so eager to confront a potential murderer, mm. like on your own? That well, does that's not seem very smart. Because there's actually a part shortly before this where he keeps talking about he's commit. Oh, he must be calling from this. He must know that I'm at the motel. He must have seen yes. him drive in. Therefore, he must be like at a phone booth within sight of the motel. So he wants to confront right. them. And it's not until very late in the novel when Ellen's like, "You realize if you confront them, like he's gonna beat the shit out of you, right?" And and he's like, "Oh, I didn't think yeah. about that." <laughs> Yeah, and he's obviously really ill-prepared. Like he's He has no control over the situation, so he wants that control again, right? So he wants that confrontation. And then when the confrontation yeah. does happen, it goes very badly for him. Yeah, he's not a fighter. He's a freaking doctor. Like, he like gets beaten down really quickly, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah big time. And then Renner shows up, or Ring. Venner. Venner is the one who shows up. To eat to the last There's a, like a patrol cop and there's <laughs> Venner. And the patrol cop is sort of like taking down what Hugh's saying pretty earnestly and doesn't recognize that Hugh is like one of the suspects in this murder case. And then Venner shows up and just starts doing his overt racism shtick on Hugh baiting him and being like, oh, wow, you're really, you know, going after this uh, Fred and his girlfriend. You're having bad luck with them this weekend, huh? Yeah. And then they just let Fred drive away. (laughs) Well, this man's like lying, like unconscious on the floor, just getting beaten up by this guy. Awful. Which brings us to the last scene, which I think is quite interesting, which was, I thought, a very powerful scene, a very good scene. The final confrontation? Are we there, John? The final Yeah, countdown? but this is one more thing that I thought was really cool is uh, he ends up under the care of his brother Edward at Skies, and he's like he's 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 in really bad shape. You know, he's completely beat up. And he takes Edward aside, he's like, Listen, you gotta shoot me full up of B twelve and Benzos. And like, <laughs> I gotta go out there and I gotta like solve this case. Edward's like, Oh god, no. And he's like, Listen, I can do it. And he does it, and it's like it's like the most hard-boiled moment, you know? Yeah, like yeah, The protagonist yeah. gets the shit beat out of him, and he's like, I still got to finish the case. And then he goes out, and he finds the last abortionist, Doc Jofer, uh, very memorable character. <laughs> so um, good. So someone, someone, please tell me about Doc Jofer. Like, what, what is, who is this guy? This is, this is critical. 
He's a disgraced doctor who performs abortions for his liquor money. He's an alcoholic. wasted, yeah. Yeah. So he's been shit-faced for decades at this point. Did you just and call he... him a Dr. Holic? <laughs> oh, I did not. No. Okay, uh, well, you, can, you should he, have. He's addicted to doctoring and alcoholism. <laughs> um, yeah, but he... It's. I think it's. It's mentioned that he lost his his medical license because of performing, uh, like medical work while trashed, basically. Um, and so when we meet him, he's got this lovely dog that won't get out of a chair, and he's drinking this disgusting yellow wine, like yellow one inch wine. at a time. Yeah. yeah, he keeps pouring out one into the wine for some reason, which is like either to, like. Like he's like I'm not drinking that much right now, or he's trying to preserve it or something. But it's it's really weird. Um, and he has this interesting reaction to Hugh, where he's both racist, but he also wants the money because he wants to drink more. And he's like, okay, maybe I'll help you out. And he's not he racist. Catches- he just he just believes that black doctors should serve black people. That's right. He just yeah, doesn't want to serve black people. Yeah. Segregation. He does say that, and then he decides, like, eh, you know, the money. You know what? How much money you have? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. Hugh offers him like yeah. I think he found out he took a fifty, right? And he Got offers a him a hundred. He also, yeah, he offers yeah. him a hundred bucks, and he's like, well, well, well. Well, for a hundred, I can go to Nogales for a whole but, week. But Hugh confronts him because he wants Doctor Ever to admit that he did the abortion yeah. on iris right that's what he wants mm-hmm. um and that's what he's that's what he's working towards um yeah can i just say like the imagery in this last scene too it's just like everything about this last scene was so good oh, even like when he described the house as like yeah. a kindergarten scrawl on the as i was like i i underlined that i was like i was like man what a what a great line like yeah Soon the house took shape, a kindergarten scrawl against the night sky. Great, yeah, great. And then it says, before he reached its gate, his wheels clattered across the warped boards of a bridge spanning a dry stream. I thought it was very powerful and interesting and evocative. Yeah, and it's such an amazing scene. Like, he's driving out, like, it's so dark in the countryside. He's, 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 He's he's completely beaten up, you know. It's still like so like disgusting and hot in Phoenix, you know. It's so muggy, and yeah. then he gets to this like this this sinister place. Everything's shapeless. Has- the chair is shapeless. There's like a shapeless dog there who barks but won't move. There's like this old man with a sagging face. There's the yellow wine. Everything's just like old yeah, and like. It, it's like they say the room movie. isn't dirty, but it isn't clean. Like yeah. it's like a horror movie setting. Yes, it is a yes. horror movie. It's it's like a horror movie. I love that though. Where he's like, he's like, it's like it's not dirty, but it isn't clean, and it's yeah. like musty, and it's like, oh my god, I know what you're talking about. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and, he sh- and he shows up, and he just says he sees a big man standing inside. There's just like there's these little like menacing details. Yeah, it really could easily turn into a horror movie. Like, I feel like the doctor, I'm picturing, like, the doctor from Human Centipede 2, which I've never seen for the record. Human Centipede 2 or Human Centipede 1? Well, Human Centipede 1 is, like, the... The German doctor. Yeah, yeah right. but no, I'm, I'm thinking about the gross one with the googly eyes. I haven't seen um, that many Human Centipedes. 
I'm, I suppose he's seen too many. <laughs> um, <laughs> one's too many. Yeah, true. And the interesting thing too is, so Hugh sees. So this is the part where they're like, there's so much on the line, right? It's this final confrontation where he's confronting this doctor, and Hugh sees this picture of him, that's like him as like a young, promising medical student, and he identifies with it. And it's just like, I thought that was this really interesting moment where he's kind of like, this is what I could become, right? He's kind yeah, of like, yes, I could become yeah. this old guy who's, you know, just got to get basically just performing, performing abortions to get through the week. He's, he's lost everything. He's clearly lost everything. He clearly used to have a nice life. He has this house, but it's gone to shit. And he, and he also still, he has like, he has like professional pride. Like yeah. at some points where he's like, he's like, I'm like a doctor, you know? And it's like this kind of warped pride that like uh, Hugh has and that like Edward has. And this kind of like, it's it's sort of like juxtaposed against that, which he finds like also disgusting. Yeah. I mean, at this point, Hugh is kind of convinced that he's like ruined anyway, right? So like when, mm -hmm. he, can, when he meets Dr. Doffit, he's basically looking, Doffer, sorry. I thought that's Doffit, but Dofer. When he meets the, when he meets the Dofer, uh, he basically is like looking at what he thinks his future is at best at this point. If he doesn't go to jail, right? <laughs> like that's what he thinks is going to happen to him. Yeah. And then he ends up bringing Ellen over, right, to make him. Because he needs he needs a woman for the abortion, so he goes yeah, back to, to get Ellen to that sell he would the story that he's trying yeah. to get an abortion. But he goes, and then it turns out that Venner and Ringel saw him do it, and they thought that he's teaming up with Jofer to yeah. do another abortion murder, and <laughs> and and then Which they like... jump him and they arrest the three of them: Ellen, Doc, Jofer, and uh, Hugh, and they take them back uh, to prison. And then um, it turns out they, you know, also picked up Fred because they found. Why did they pick up Fredo? Because they found uh, like evidence in his mom's car, or something, right? Yeah, blood off of, like the seats. Right, right, right. right. I just then, love. So then there's a conf. Then, they, then like the cops are just like, all right, why don't we just have everyone confront each other here? Yeah. <laughs> and then Fredo makes the biggest mistake of his life, which no was not murdering his teenage girlfriend the impregnated. It was insulting the professional competency of Doc Jofer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he calls yeah, Doc Jofer. But Sorry, also, the, it, and I, I thought it was a great callback to the beginning where Hugh could tell that the... What's her name? Iris, aka Bonnie, was lying. Like he can tell that the doctor's kind of putting it on. Like he acts drunk yeah. when he wants to. Oh, Joel is amazing you, in that scene. Yeah, but you can sense that he's calculating, like which. Well, what are the angles? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Which? Like, how do I come out? Like, what's been the best for me? And then he decides that like confessing is. But the best but part thing. of part of what he thinks is best for him is to get there and be like, can a guy get a drink of water around here? And what about some ice? It's so hot out. And then the second they bring it to him, he pulls out that bottle of bourbon that he gave him. <laughs> he's mixing himself a highball well, yeah. in the police station. He's playing up the comedy because he knows that he'll get a lighter scent. He'll get treated yeah. lighter. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like calculated. Even though he's he's drunk, he knows that he has to like sort of play up this. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the penultimate error of 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 Fredo, you know, is is insulting the professional competency of um, Doctor Jeffrey. He calls him uh, a drunk old hoss doctor, and then uh, the narration goes, "It could have been the professional insult. It could have been the bottle Hugh had given him. It could have been Doctor Jeffrey knew when to sing." And he's like. No, Fredo, you killed her. I just gave the abortion <laughs> to her, and and then and then Fredo, you know, sort of basically admits to it. Um, I just love ha- case yeah, closed. We have a we have a happily ever after, which I did not I mean, expect in a noir novel. First of all, I love how much jo- Jofer just takes it in stride. Just like I'm going back to jail. I'm gonna just <laughs> get the best ride I can. No, he take care of my he dog. He says who's gonna. Yeah. He says who's gonna take care of my dog. Yeah, He's like really worried about it. Yeah, and the and the sheriff's like, I well, we got it, Jofer. We we you know they got a whole song and dance going on. But yeah, Roxette, yeah, happy ending. Hugh and Helen, Ellen drive off into the sunset. They're going to get married. Yeah, kind of. And I was like, wow, isn't this supposed to be about like tortured souls, this genre? <laughs> Are they not supposed to be happy? That was interesting because yeah. until that moment, I was like literally till the last word of the book. I was like, when is the other shoe going to drop? Like, okay. He didn't get like okay. What's gonna happen? Um, and that that was kind of a lot of the tension that kept it going. I found that like really kept me engaged. Was kind of like, will or will he or will he not get blamed for the murder? Is one thing. Will he or will he not get blamed for the abortion? There's also the whole thing about like, will my name be in the papers? And it's like, Hackaberry and Sky are both like throwing their weight around to keep that from happening. Um, and then. You just think like, okay, well, maybe I, I just expected something to go horribly wrong. And I expected like it would be his hubris that would bring something along, you know, like maybe Sky has sealed the case. They found this girl. They've, they've proven that Fredo is guilty. And then maybe um, uh, Hugh brings Ellen to the uh, abortionist and something goes horribly wrong and like Ellen gets hurt or Ellen goes to jail you know like I thought like something like that was going to happen I, 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 I was like how is his life going to be a ruined? very a very different book would have had something like horrible like I thought there's a few times where like okay first they have Ellen she stays at the same room that Hugh stayed at in 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 the palm and I was like okay Ellen's gonna get murdered. Someone's gonna mm-hmm. go there to murder Hugh. Ellen's gonna get murdered. That's gonna be like the the lasting trauma. I also, a different kind of book. I would have thought that maybe Edward, the brother, was the abortionist. Like the <laughs> I thought that's that interesting. too. That's interesting. I thought that too because like, but it's, the way yeah. they were setting it up, like I just thought, like, why doesn't he want to tell him? And then I was like, oh yeah. I feel like in these modern books, they don't or. I don't want to say books, but modern stories like our movies like this, they don't waste characters. So like every character has to be suspicious. So like I'm reading this as like as a, you know, modern reader and I'm thinking everyone here is a suspect, right? And then like even the parts were like, and like also like the antagonist must be some mastermind, right? Even the parts mm. were like, Hugh is like, um, I, I'm going to... I know that the person calling us must have be able to see that I've 
uh, driven into the hotel. So he has to be like one of these like three places essentially. So I, if I just go to them, then I'll eventually catch him, right? And I'm like, oh no, no, he's he's too smart for that, you know this this bad guy. But no, he's not too smart. <laughs> it's it's really it's really I don't want to use the word banal, but it is like an, a banal crime. And the only reason why it's so difficult for Hugh to extricate is because of his race, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like Fredo is not a criminal mastermind. Doc Jofer is certainly not a criminal <laughs> mastermind. You know, like he's like a hapless drunk. It's just like the the reason why this is so dire for Hugh is because the cops are racist and fucking incompetent. Yeah, I can't help. Uh, well, they are also racist, but I also can't think help thinking of the villains from Teen- Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Bebop what do you think Rocksteady? of Venner and Wrinkle? <laughs> Be- yeah, Bebop and Rocksteady. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it's 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 that's kind of the main thing in this book is like if if you and Sky, I guess, don't take like don't take this up on their own, then the cops will not solve this case the way it's supposed to. Well, no, they also want, they want to solve it in the way that Hugh is the one who did it because they by see him as it, out I of town. I mean, I mean, find the real, yeah. like find yeah, yeah, the real, yeah. by, in the sense of like justice, solve it. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like procedurally, yes, they, you know, they, they have their, their suspect or whatever. They could just, you know, pin it all on Hugh. But like, I mean, like they won't solve the case in reality. They won't find the truth, you know? And they, and they won't. And they like, they refuse to. They're an impediment to it, you know? And I thought it was like, yeah, it was really powerful. Like Hugh, in some ways, I know, Kevin, you're saying like he's like kind of like a pride thing. I didn't really like that. I read it as like, he knows this is the only way to get out of this. He has to solve this on his own. He thinks. Well, Sky basically well, has it in the bag before he goes to see Joe for... He's kind of just, I mean, I guess, I guess he didn't have to go see Jofer at all. Oh, but then it would have been his word against Fredo's. And that was already proven to not be so good because Fredo was like, oh, he started that fight where I beat the shit out of him, you know? And like, yeah, and Hugh, Hugh kind of yeah. says that I fled as well. town if, for if, no reason. <laughs> I'm Fredo. <laughs> he says if it's my word against his, like, they're, they're going to believe him, not me. Yeah, but Fredo and they do. Had, like they Fred do. fled town. Like it was like it was not looking yeah, good for Fredo. Yeah, but they didn't care at all. They're like, whatever. He's just like you know, Fred. I was like, well, yeah, murdering, rapey Fred guys with the long blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, the long straight overalls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess they drive. They ride off in the sunset, like Ellen. But it is, it is very sad. There's Poor some Iris. ambiguity in there though, because there's sort of this weird conversation they have where Hugh sort of asks Ellen, he's, and he's like, yeah, you kind of had the hots for Houston, didn't you? And then it gets into this strange discussion where she's like, well, maybe in another world where in the United States in 1963, you could be a mixed-race couple without getting hassled. Yeah, maybe I'd end up with Houston. But we're not in that world, so we're no. going to get married together. Yeah, she totally She explicitly does not say that. She says, well, first of all, yeah, I would not I would not marry a white man, but also like he's not the man I want. She explicitly says that. Uh, I th- I'm pretty Do sure we need she's to open books. Yeah, this, we're opening this, books. This, 
Yeah, let's not let's not do that, Jake. If you're wrong, um, <laughs> he's showing us blurry words. Okay, let's see. So, I love Sky. I'll always love him. There are different ways of loving. Even if you weren't white, even if you weren't married, I wouldn't marry him unless I couldn't have the man I want. Meaning Hugh. So Hugh is her is her number one. Sky is her number two. No, but look before in that, a world though. of 1963. You have to look at like a paragraph above that, though, uh, where where he says, if things had been different, it might have been you and Sky, mightn't it? She didn't hesitate. They would have had to be very different. If he hadn't been married, her words were simple. If he hadn't been white. That's right before. (laughs) And then she says, if he hadn't been white, he would have been my number two. Okay. All right. All right. Maybe. Maybe. Well, there's a part earlier where you find out that she's studying to be like, um, she wants to be a foreign diplomat. Um, yeah. So maybe she's just going to end up being like a spy. And um, <laughs> Also, I love how he's Maybe there's going to be something interesting happening with Ellen. We can only imagine. So the question Roxanne brought up earlier, though, Jacob, like, it's just, why, what makes this a noir? Like, like I, cause I think of, I think of like the Kane novels where it's like someone's, it's like a scheme that goes horribly wrong. Or I think of like Coen brothers movies, you know, there's like, there's always this like scheme gone wrong aspect. In this case, it's just like a guy who's falsy. Well, I think, I think of it's kind of as like an inverted noir, right? Where it's in the sense that like you have a character who's completely fucked but the reason he's completely fucked isn't because he's come up with this perfect crime. It's because someone's trying to pin the perfect crime on him. And then because of the political dimension of the book, like the perfect crime turns out to be like, Oh, you can use racism to frame someone who had nothing to do with anything. And that's what he's sort of struggling against. Right? So you have this antagonist that's kind of off screen for most of the book. Um, which is Fred O, uh, who he's the one who's trying to pull off the kind of noir plot, and then Hugh is kind of the sort of collateral damage that is like that's our perspective on it. So I think that like in a lot of ways she's borrowing some of the structure of a noir novel, but with these really clever I think inversions to feed into the kind of like other arguments she's making about race and class and sex and all that stuff that come into it so i think that's how it's kind of a noir it reminds me of like if if you watch the third man it's a similar thing where like the protagonist is not necessarily well maybe debatable like morally compromised but he's kind of thrust into like a very complicated morally ambiguous situation where he has to deal with like morally compromised people so i mean i don't want to i don't want to have this like genre police argument because there's always exceptions and stuff but I, I think it is noirish in that and i know you're going to say that not all noir has this like crime or detective element but a lot of it is about crime and either solving the crime or hiding the crime which in itself usually has this like solving moment like for example like keys yeah. is kind of the detective and he's sort of chasing after them and in this, Hugh's a detective. I mean, he's a detective, right? He's, he's trying to solve the crime. Um, but it has that element. It's like a morally compromised environment and context. And this one definitely is that, you know? Yeah, um, I agree with that. I don't think it has to be like scheme gone wrong. Maybe that's just like 
most people yeah. not being very original with their stories. And I don't think the protagonist necessarily has to be morally compromised for this to work. I think it's. But I also like think like the twists and turns of this though vibes are... or atmosphere has to be sort of morally compromised. Well, the constant anxiety and the dread, and it's like, oh, this world already has the fixed for me, and like, and it seems you know. like the, the one of the more more important things with like a lot of what we consider noir. I mean, if we're not considering it like as purely as like a film aesthetic, I mean, it's like the way that you run into these like morally compromised systems and how they affect you, and then how you either try and someone is trying to subvert them, or how you have to sort of work within yeah, you're trapped them and it, like, in some impedes way. you. Like all the books we've read, all the movies we get are, are about that. Like basically, you know, yeah. sort of like larger symptoms and systems, and someone trying to either get what they want or do something bad or right or wrong, but their their antagonist is like a system, sort of not completely in their control. And this has all that. Yeah, I think maybe if it hadn't had like the happy driving off in the sunset ending, I might have. It might, it might be like the crushing the crush he beat the crushing system in the end but maybe it's maybe it's not that happy because Hugh's mistake in in the novel was just like being a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time you know and mm -hmm. like that's something those two and their their children you know presumably they're gonna have children i guess because they're gonna get married right and stuff like that's something that you'd have to deal with even like today you know like <laughs> Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't get much better. <laughs> I was laughing to myself because I was about to ask Kevin, why don't you think this could be made into a film? And then I clicked in my own head that you would see from the beginning <laughs> that he's black. Yeah, that's, that's, that you, just, didn't, you didn't get that. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> it's, how about the the movies just completely from the first person until the you couldn't really I mean you could it really would be a different it. movie but it's just like I, I don't know but An that's another one... question is could you could you write this book but it takes place in 2023 and the answer is yes <laughs> I, yeah. yes yeah. I was gonna, I mean it, it some, kinda... some, some you know updates yeah it reminded me a bit of this like new crime book I read called All This Sinners Bleed, which mm. is like set in the South and it's like a black sheriff. And anyway, there's all <laughs> these like racist undertones of like what's happening today. And I was like, yeah, this could be set today easily. Yeah, I feel like though like a, a, a book set today would not have a happily ever after in it. No. At best, a happy ever after with a very large asterisk. Or the or the character of Ellen might be a bit more like I was gonna say complex, but not yeah. I mean, she's just like a ray of sunshine. Like she's it's totally cool with the whole ridiculous vacation that's been ruined by this shitty guy. <laughs> she's cool about it from the beginning. She's into him from the beginning. She's beautiful, she's smart, she's got money. Like, there's just no flaw to this person. She's kind. I mean, like, even the end, he's like, he's like, yeah, so when I get back to school, I gotta work for, like, two weeks straight. Uh, you might not be able to see anything except for the cafeteria at UCLA. And she's like, that's fine, honey. 
as long as it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine, baby. We got, we got, I got sixteen-hour shifts. Do you know what that means? And she's like, I got this book I've been reading this whole time. <laughs> yeah, she's like a bit too good. Like I don't know. I, I do, I do think that there's still an ominous. Sorry, I, I do think that the ending is a little bit more ominous because, like, part of she kills him. She does. That's right. She drives the car <laughs> off the road and then covers, pours wine on the body, sets yeah. fire to it, and pushes it off a cliff. Um, no, uh, but I do think it's a bit more honest than that because, like, part of the tension in the book is that, like, uh, Hugh keeps thinking that, like, his professional status and his family and his connections are, like, worth something. And, like, they kind of aren't when it comes up against like essentially what is like a two bit racist cop, right? Like and that's this what is I, kind that's of what thing. I was saying. That's what yeah. I was saying. That's why there yeah. is no there is no happy ending because they're still black in America. But, but the last line of the book is also, you know, they were smiling at both of the plans they were making. Um but but yeah, but I but I but I but I agree with you, Jacob, that it is like still like despite all their advantages and everything, they're still at this like you know, and it almost doesn't work. Like it, it all America. turns on the drunk doctor, the drunk like yes. abortion doctor deciding. It's like a flip of a coin, basically, is what it comes yeah, down yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It's with just you. like I agree it's not you. like I don't think it's actually like so cut and dry that this like all worked out. Like the system really didn't fucking work. You know, like no, he it gets didn't work by at all. I agree. Teeth. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It, it is kind of like I see what you're saying, Kevin. It's like a happy ending. They're driving a sunset, but like the reality is, if you think about it, like. Hugh driving there in the first place, he was living a really good life. And then, like, yeah. the mistake he made was helping someone and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, like, that could still happen to them. That's what I was saying. It could still happen to them at any time, you know, in, in America. And even with all the connections he has, like, he has basically, like, like and that's kind of like, um, like, one of the, like, the, the, uh, the interesting things about this is that like the main guy, like main character, Hugh is like from like an upper middle class background. Right. And it's like, even with all these advantages and even with this girl, he just met who has insane political connections. Like it's this close. Yeah. To, like, still to get the him. shit beat out of him. <laughs> like, yeah. He's still, he's, well, still, he's still got beaten half to death, you know, but that's like, kind of despite his connections, because he's kind of got Ellen on his side, he's got Sky on his side, and he's like stubbornly like, "No, I'm going to solve this myself," and that's what gets the shit beaten out of him. No, um, I don't. I don't think it's I'm going to solve it. He, he, he I don't, it is. I, I, it's I, on I, his I way to Doc Jopers when he gets run off the road and beaten up by by <laughs> yeah. Fred O, because he's because he's determined to solve this case himself. Yeah, but 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 Fred O was threatening him and give, leaving anonymous tips and planting evidence against him from the start. Sure. And also, like, if he didn't go confront Doc Jofer and, like, make this confrontation between Jofer and Fredo, it would have been Fredo's word against um, Hughes. And we already saw that didn't matter for anything because after he got beaten, the cops were taking Fredo's side. Yeah. You know? I don't know. And also, I think the other point is just, like, they ride off in the sunset, but, like, if this is a, if this is a, if these were if these were black people who were not upper class and didn't have all these connections, they'd be completely screwed. I mean, that's yeah. that's 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 like a central point. I think message of the of the of the book is like 
anyone like and i think class is like a really big part of the book like anyone who's like lower class and stuck with it like they would have uh venner and 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 ringle would have like arrested them and thrown them in jail like right after they identified the corpse you know what i mean like none of like none of this would have been going on like and he wouldn't have made it past that, that is that is <laughs> yeah. that is a very pessimistic worldview you know um and it's like you know, accurate. Um, but impressions of the book. Let's try to let's try to put a pin in this one. <laughs> I really like this book. Like I feel like I haven't read any noir, and when I think of noir, I think of James M. Cain. <laughs> like that when reading James M. Cain, I'm like, yeah, this is what I expected, and this is not what I expected at all. Like not only because of the twist, but also because of like. It's very well written. Um, I love the like the settings across the book are just. I mean, we've already talked about some of them, but like uh, a lot of the descriptions of places, I like just highlighted. Also, the presence of heat throughout the book. We didn't really talk about, but how they're always like oh, yeah. so hot. Like it just like. And he's always like running without his car and just like so hot. He has to stop through water and then he's like, I need you know, a like, coke so bad. Just, like, yeah, just the general setting. Like, oh, just when he goes she... in the phone booth, he goes. He's like in the hot box phone booth while he's waiting <laughs> yeah. for the the doctor to call yeah. back. And he's like, but, and, you and, know, and, like the scripture is like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's covered in sweat. He's like, I might actually pass out. Like, <laughs> yeah, but actually, until you know, I realized that you would see that he's black, so that would ruin the movie. <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. This would make for a great film because, like, the scenes are so excellent. The different settings would be like so great to see. Like, just the way she's described them. Like, you can really also her characters. Yeah, I really like this. Um, All right, Jacob, I guess I won't read her short stories because they're shit. <laughs> Don't listen to Kevin. <laughs> I don't know. I love this one. I think uh, uh, Dorothy B. Hughes is a real button pusher, just in the sense of like she's she's really playing on the expectations that I sort of had of like what a noir is going into this and just like fucking mashing on those buttons to lead me astray and then surprise do surprising things and put things in a noir that we we haven't really seen in the season to this point. Like the whole first like 20% 20% of the book when he's with Iris in the car is like incredibly suspenseful because of this entire time I'm like okay which of them which of them is the bad one right or like are they going to be the bad one together like what terrible scheme are they going to come up with and because of how she's written and because of this twist where you find out you know later that he's black and actually he's not going to do anything bad at all like it's like she's really like sort of like like understands like what the audience wants and like seems to be giving it to them but then it's like actually no i'm gonna totally mess with this and do all kinds of stuff 
Um, and it was, it was great. I, I don't know. I really, really love this book. I, I agree with a lot of what Roxanne said, and it's interesting to see something overtly political uh, in this kind of genre, like, and not just like political in the sense that, like, you know, sort of like what Kevin's saying before, is, or John's saying about like you have these 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 systems that imprison people in that kind of sense, but it's like this also about this issue that in 1963 would have been like insanely contentious, and the way that she uh, approaches that is like uh really fascinating and uh it was a gripping read i loved it 10 plus <laughs> 10 plus wow 10 plus. all right kevin what did you think of this book i thought it was a very good book i enjoyed every page of this book um my estimation of uh dorothy b hughes increased a hundredfold um <laughs> <laughs> I I like but going back to the kind of it can't be a movie thing. I love that about it. Like I love like a piece of art that could only exist in its own medium. You yeah. know, it's like this thing could only be a novel, or else like you could do a movie adaptation, but it would be it would you have to completely change it. Um, so yeah, I mean like plot wise, it only works as a novel. Um, but it's also like Roxanne was saying, just like the descriptions are just so clean and interesting and incredible and precise um as i've said before i'm not usually that interested in like what's gonna happen at the end kind of mystery stuff like i'm kind of like i don't really care like i want to i want to have a good ride along the way but this one i did it did read as a page turner to me where i was very much like what's gonna happen what's gonna happen so yeah I know we're early in the season, but it's a highlight so far. All right. So I'm last. Yeah, I also love this book. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really great. Uh, thanks a lot, Jacob, for putting this book on our, our syllabus. This book this book is really great. It's really special. Um, it doesn't seem like this book is generally seen as like a classic, um, even in Hughes's uh, like repertoire, but it should be. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's really great. Um, and like, like I, there are some books where I don't really care what the plot is, what happens, but I think I'm a little more plot driven as a person than you, Kevin. But like, I also like a book that's, you know, more v about voice and like, you know, narrative Hi, John, and stuff I'm like plot that. Driven. Um, but, but I, I was also like, I do, I do like a book that has lots of, you know, events stitched together in a way that makes me want to like go through it and like. This is a great book. I was really like on the edge of my seat. I, I I know we've sort of moved past that initial reveal, but I still think it was like really powerful and really you know sets a sort of frame to read the whole book in in a in a way that was really great. And I love that like Kevin said, it could only exist like in this medium, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great book. Uh, also, I, I, we didn't really talk about it like you said, Roxanne, but like the sense of place was really great. Like. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. wow, Phoenix is hot. Um. <laughs> sort of the precursor to Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and the setting of, like, you have that kind of, like, Arizona, New Mexico, desert-style noir. Sure, is, sure, uh... sure. Mm. Yeah, what, what, a, what, a, what a great book. Um, yeah, thanks, Jacob. Good job, Jacob. Of, uh, Don't thank me. So thank Dorothy B. Thank you, Dorothy B. <laughs> What's the B stand for? 
Dorothy Malahan Hughes. I can't, guys. <laughs> that was the Renderizer. <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, thank you, John with an H, Roxanne with an H, Jacob with an H. Um, I'm Kevin Sexton. Um, with an H. <laughs> with an H. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at the Renderizer. Email us at ashowaboutbooks at gmail.com. I edit and make music for this show. Jacob tells us what to read. What else do I need to say? What are we doing next week? Not picking up anyone on the street. Not doing that. I think we're getting into uh, Patricia Highsmith's Strangers on a Train. Ooh, another lady. That's right. We're doing two ladies in a row. Three episodes in a row involving ladies. This is something I never thought we would get to. Ladies. <laughs> ladies. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are such allies. Thank you. 